0: Excellent. Good morning, everyone, everyone here, everyone watching, and good morning to our international visitors, those who are watching this morning and who will be watching this week. We love you. We cherish you. We appreciate you very much for, for joining us from the far side of the world, some of you literally. Please say hello if you are so inclined and let us know how we can pray for you. And uh, hello to all of the folks in the country who have been watching and keeping up with us. Very good morning to you. Hope you had a very good week and a very good morning to those church members and friends of the church who are watching from Ohio and various other states. In our global prayer guide this morning, I'd like to bring to your attention folks in Amman, Christian believers in the rather small nation of Amman, which borders Saudi Arabia and which borders Yemen. Oman, according to Voice of the Martyrs, is a restricted country. Oman is ruled by a sultan who has granted a certain degree of freedom of religion during his reign, even financing the construction of four Catholic and Protestant churches, as well as several Hindu temples. Omani society is progressive and open compared with that of some of its neighbors. However, there are very few Omani Christians in the country and they must meet in homes and keep their faith secret because it is illegal to live is, uh, leave Islam. That's rather interesting. They claim that they're a fairly open society, but it's for you can't leave Islam and they're building Protestant and Catholic churches. That's a bit of a mystery to me. More than 99.9% of the people there are Sunni Muslims. Family members pressure those who convert from Islam to Christianity and the government will intervene if christian converts become well known or cause shame in their community very strange situation there obviously the few known christians of amani background must worship in absolute secrecy and maintain their islamic identity in public foreign christians here's the answer foreign christians are permitted to meet but they are not allowed to meet in homes or evangelize other Amanis. Both the Amani Church and expatriate Christians face the dilemma of whether to obey the government or to obey the commands of Christ. The Bible Society is allowed to sell Bibles and Christian literature inside the country, but Bibles cannot be sold to Amanis. There is only one Christian bookstore in Amman's capital, but Amanis can easily access digital and audio Bibles online. There's the key. Voice of the Martyrs provides Christian materials to workers for distribution inside the country and helps with the training of local believers in evangelism and discipleship. So please pray for our brothers and sisters in Oman. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this very, very beautiful day and thank you for the warm, cheerful weather and sunny skies more so than usual than we've had this November. Thank you for each and every one of these beautiful days for which we are very, very grateful. Each of these wonderful days which points to the perfect world to come that is on its way. That Paul constantly reminds us of in this letter. Our ultimate destination and our ultimate reality. Please hear our prayers, Lord, in behalf of brothers and sisters members of the one body of Christ, the one true church in this world, our brothers and sisters in Oman. Help these folks in their very difficult situation. Convince the leadership there to not just give lip service to some freedoms and liberties in their country, but to truly pursue it and to permit it. I pray that you will guard these brothers and sisters, and keep them safe, keep them safe from harm, even regrettably from their own families and from their own neighbors. Give them the bravery and the courage that they need to serve you. Help us to get the word of God to them by any means that we can. By these messages and Bible study sessions that are recorded, but I pray that you will help them by way of technology to gain access to sacred scripture and thereby be able to apply it, translate it into action in their life. Open the hearts and minds of everyone who will be watching and listening the exposition, the teaching of your word in our community, in our country, and around the world. And we are very grateful for everyone who has been watching and listening and participating, especially those who are from afar. We pray for every member of our congregation present and away keep them safe we pray for our friend bruce boyd and for his family to recover from their recent illnesses we pray for sister Jean for her back and for her legs and we pray for wisdom and guidance with the doctors and technicians to treat her in the way that she needs most we pray for dan and kim's church in springfield for the difficult times that they're going through Give them wisdom and the guidance of your spirit to stay true to your word and to your principles and to do the right thing. Shower your grace and your favor upon them in their difficult time. I pray for Melanie's brother who has COVID. Please heal him, raise him up off of his sickbed. Reveal yourself to him and his family in a very special way as you wish to do through any difficult situation or circumstance we may encounter. We pray for our sister Claudia. We pray for her complete healing and we thank you for her witness and for her example to this church and to her family and I'm certain to everyone who encounters her in the doctor's office or the hospital and we rejoice for you keeping her in good health. I pray for our niece and her baby born yesterday and I pray for this child and for this family. May they stay true to you And I pray for this child, that this baby would receive salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord, and come to know you and be a champion for you and your truth in this child's life, all life long. I pray for Mr. Fred LaQuesta and for his illness. Please heal him and help him to be a witness and example to whoever he will be encountering during his recovery. Please hear these very imperfect prayers. And please honor our prayers on behalf of those for whom we are praying. We pray for brothers and sisters around the entire world, one body, one church, one kingdom, one new people, one new humanity, in Jesus our Lord. And we thank you that no matter how the old dragon stomps and foams and rages about this world and rearing his ugly head as he is in this country, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still growing, is still spreading, and will not ever fail will not ever fade. Help us to do our duty as Christians to be a bright and burning light for the kingdom of Jesus Christ and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course we pray for our own nation and for the difficult time that we are going through the battle to preserve freedom and liberty and to preserve America as it was founded. Help us to do our duty not only for ourselves but I am amazed at all of the persons from around the entire world who are letting us know that they are watching and they are listening and they are counting on us to keep the sacred fire of liberty alive some way, somehow in this world. Help us to not let them down either. May the meditations of all of our hearts this morning, may the words of my mouth Be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only Rock and Redeemer. You who are our one and only hope, and you who are more than hope enough for one and for all. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord, continuing on in our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. There we are. Having trouble keeping my Bible in place up here this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul's exhortation to unity. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility. And gentleness with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So now, if you notice, Paul turns to instruction. He turns to exhortation. He turns to giving specific instructions. And as we begin chapter 4, you're going to see basically three subsections as we begin this chapter. First of all, verses 1 to 6, which we study today, then verses 7 to 10, and then verses 11 to 16. And these three little subsections of verse, uh, pardon me, of chapter 4 are what we would call life application or life application instruction based on the theological truth and the doctrinal truth that he has been teaching us in this letter thus far. Basically, Chapters 1 to 3, it's doctrine and theology. Then life application, chapters 4 to 6, the remainder of the letter. So, um, the exhortation of Scripture, according to the ESV Study Bible, I like this remark that the English Standard Version Study Bible makes in their heading of this portion of the letter, chapter 4. The exhortations of Scripture become empty moralism without the gospel foundation first there must be gospel foundation theological and doctrinal foundation again that is chapters 1 to 3 and then we apply the truth that we have learned in chapters 1 to 3 to our life how then shall we live how do we translate these words into action in our life how are we supposed to live based on all the truth that Paul's confronted us with chapters 1 to 3 well that is going to consume the remainder of the letter chapters 4 to 6 So, in verses 1 to 6, in particular, the passage we'll unpack today, Paul exhorts the church to unity. Unity based on the truths of the one God and His one work of salvation. So, verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So first of all, again, Paul is going to now teach life application. As I like to say, translate these words into action in your life. In the chapters to follow, 4 to 6, we will have very clear implications of all the theological and doctrinal realities that he has been confronting us with up to this point in the letter. I think he's saying this, Because of all of this truth revealed to me and given to you, this is then how we should live. And I'm going to give you instruction on how to do that. I therefore, that is, therefore because of all the truth revealed in this letter, therefore. Therefore I, Paul, by apostolic authority, as I am a prisoner of the Lord Christ himself, for his sake, for his cause, for his service, therefore I entreat you. And Paul's entreaty, his exhortation holds great authority. It holds Holy Spirit-inspired authority, it holds apostolic authority. He uses the, we traditionally translate the original Greek as I entreat you. But really these, <laughs> this entreaty is all but, a, all but an imperative. You could just as well translate that as a command. We are receiving our marching orders. This is how we are to live because of the truth that he's been giving us. Paul has established the believer's new identity in Christ, if you recall. Chapters 1 to 3. So now he entreats, he all but commands believers to live their lives in a manner that demonstrates the reality of this new identity. You don't just pay lip service to the new identity, you live it out. This is your new identity in Christ, presumably. If you truly are a recipient of the new birth, now you have to live that out. We have to see evidence of that. Demonstration of the reality of this new identity. Entreat, the word he uses in the original is parakalo, a very strong word. It's a very strong appeal. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Klesios es eklathete in the original Greek from the original word kaleo, to call. And to walk... Is "Pateo," meaning to walk, we call Jesus a peripatetic teacher because he was constantly on the move. To walk, in this context, is used metaphorically. You and I might translate that as the way that you walk, as in the way you live your daily life, your life's walk, your life's journey. To live worthily of your call by God to redemption, to the new birth, to life in his kingdom. To live your life worthily of being called to this new life and identity in Christ, God the Redeemer. Our being called by God, this ties into a very important theological truth that he gave us towards the beginning of the letter. He's basically restating the doctrine of predestination and election. To live worthily of your call. God has called you. That statement's very closely related to the predestination and election that Paul spoke of earlier in the letter. You are part of a plan that was devised in the mind and heart of God from before the foundation of the world. Thereby you are called, from before the world was spoken into existence. As theologian Peter O'Brien writes in his commentary, God's calling establishes the criteria to which the believer's conduct should conform. Verse 2, called with what? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Now I'm going to pick this apart for you at some length. And I'm going to do so from the original language because the words humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance are going to mean something slightly different than what you may think at a surface or cursory reading in 21st century English. Hmm? With all humility and gentleness. First of all, humility was not a character trait that was admired in the ancient world. Not the biblical definition of humility. It was not admired in the ancient world, not at all. It was viewed with derision and with contempt. The Romans would have called it cowardice. And the biblical concept of humility and gentleness is often mocked and derided in the 21st century world as well. Most of all, what Paul is speaking of is not only humility and gentleness in regards to our relationships with fellow believers, as certainly as that, but it is much more. First and foremost, we are to show and demonstrate and exercise humility before God himself. God demands humility from all human beings. He first and foremost means humility before God. Not hubris, not pride, not arrogance. Not hubris and pride and arrogance with fellow believers, but again, most of all, before God. Sacred Scripture, both Testaments, constantly warns of the sin of pride, hubris, or arrogance. One example from the Old Testament, Isaiah 66, verse 2, in which the prophet quotes the words of the Lord. This is the one I esteem, He or she who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A study on humility as a biblical reality, as a biblical concept, can keep you busy for a very long time. Also gentleness. Humility and gentleness. The word Paul uses for gentleness, or that we translate as gentleness, is protetos. And protetos really means self-control. Poise, That sort of gentleness. It's the type of gentleness that, as far as historic or classical Western culture is concerned, it's the type of gentleness by which we come by the concept of being a gentleman or a gentlewoman. A gentleman or a lady. Not the title, but the character trait. A way of behavior, a way of conduct, a way of life. The concept of being a gentleman or gentlewoman. Not only literal, physical gentleness or tenderness, but a person of character, a person of integrity, a person of what we would call quiet dignity. Quiet dignity employs proper behavior without arrogance or without pride. That type of humility, that type of gentleness that type of humility and gentleness, with patience, makrotumia, from the original Greek, which you could just as well translate as forbearance. But also, fortitude. That's the kind of patience that Paul means here. Fortitude patience. Long-suffering patience. Tough-it-out patience. Patience that is for the long haul. In for the long haul patience. Endurance. That all goes along or flows into what Paul mentions next. Showing forbearance. Showing forbearance to all people. First and foremost, particularly to other Christian believers. Showing tolerance. Oh, dare I use that word. A word which has been almost completely ruined in the English language. True tolerance. Dictionary, old dictionary definition of tolerance. The biblical definition of tolerance. The right, true tolerance. Not the fallen culture, fallen world's leftist tolerance. Not the tolerance which is just another form of tyranny. True tolerance. And this is what he means in particular by tolerance or forbearance. He means this. To patiently help along someone who is less fortunate than you are in a given talent skill or ability it is active patience it is active forbearance if you encounter anyone that's not as smart as you are that's not as well educated as you are that is not as skilled or talented with certain abilities in certain areas that you are pitch in and help them out give them a leg over give them a lift up it's active it's that kind of forbearance Reach out and help someone that in some way is not as gifted or blessed or able as you are. That's what he means by showing forbearance. And all of this demonstrated to one another in love. And yes, the Apostle John would be very happy. It is agape love that he taught us about in his three letters that we studied this past summer. Agape love, the highest, noblest, truest form of love Love which is sacrificial, Godlike love, the love which he gives to us as a gift at the new birth, and the love which we are, the God-like love which is mirrors and reflects His nature, that we are to demonstrate and give to others around us. All of these virtues by way of Agape love, Godlike love given to us as a gift. And so we can demonstrate these virtues to our Christian brothers and sisters, verse three being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's an interesting thing to say. Those of you who have your ESV study Bible, I'll quote it again. And their textual notes on this verse. Peace is a state of reconciliation and love, and therefore acts as a bond to unite believers in Christ. Very important point here. This is why I'm quoting this. Believers do not create unity, but are to preserve the unity already established. Notice what Paul says there. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is responsible for that unity. The Spirit establishes that unity. The Spirit gives that unity. We don't. We're incapable of it on our own. The Spirit creates that unity. Preserve the unity of the Spirit, unity in the church. The unity between believers, again, comes by way of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God creates unity. We are given instructions to preserve or maintain that unity that the Holy Spirit has created or established. Peace, erenes in the Greek, and that beautiful Hebrew word, shalom. And again, the biblical definition of peace. It is wholeness and wellness in the person's entire being, and where it comes from is God. It starts with a right, restored relationship with the Creator, Redeemer, God. He is the source of peace. He is the giver of peace. And once you have peace with God, then you can begin to be. Well, you can begin on pursuing peace with yourself, and then you can pursue peace with others. And with the world around you. That is the biblical concept of a or shalom peace. True peace only comes from God as a gift. A blessing from God. And we are to strive and maintain it and preserve it amongst true Christian believers. This peace which is a gift of God was made and established by God's Spirit among believers. And this is the bond that holds believers together. He uses a very interesting word for bond. A very interesting word. Sundesmos, and sundesmos is related to the root word desma, and desma is often translated as chain. Sundesmos is often translated as to be chained, as in to be bonded, to be bonded by a chain. Pretty strong word Paul uses. In fact, this word is used in the New Testament to describe Paul as a prisoner in the New Testament. He is saying believers are to be bonded. They are to be chained. That kind of a bond to one another in or by peace in this unity established by the Spirit of God. Just as Paul was oftentimes bound to a Roman guard by his chain, so he wishes for Christians to be bound or chained to one another by peace and by love. Verse 4, there is one body. Now, this is interesting. Let me read this for you, verses 4 to 6 carefully, and then we'll go back and unpack it. Does this sound a bit formal to you? In fact, some of you in your Bible translation, it may be in italics. It is heightened language, poetic language. It is something of a formula in the original Greek. And some biblical uh, New Testament Greek scholars, church historians believe, is Paul actually quoting something of a song or a poem or some type of liturgy that was used in the early church that was inspired by the Spirit, of course, and that he incorporates in this letter. We don't know for sure. That's speculation, but it's possible. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of this calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Very, very interesting. First of all, let's unpack this. One body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Again, many have believed throughout the centuries that verses 4 to 6 may be a formal creed used by the early church. Inspired and included here is a declaration of Christian truth that is to bind all Christians together. It's certainly that. We're not certain of this speculation, very well may have been the case. But it is something of a formulaic truth statement that Paul wants us to recognize and he wants us to live by. There is one body and one spirit. In other words, what he's saying is this. There is one true body of God's people in this world, the church. And there is one spirit which makes this church a body, the Holy Spirit of God Himself. As theologian S.M. Bow writes in his commentary, I very much like a few points he made upon this statement. The true church is unified as what we call, what Paul calls, the body of Christ. And just as one human being has only one body, so that one human being has only one spirit. So from here, the metaphor ends, and the reality that it points to begins, which is... There is only one true church, born of God believers, the one body of Christ. So also, this one church, this one body, is filled by the one Holy Spirit of God, who unifies the church with His glorious presence and brings access to the Father to all who make up the one church. Christians do not lose their individual existence to be absorbed somehow into the divine presence. No, that's Eastern paganism. But the one Holy Spirit of God poured out in the believers' hearts ties them mysteriously together in union with Christ and with one another. End quote. One Spirit, Paul is saying. This is very important. Let's go back to these folks who were receiving this letter for the first time 2,000 years ago. This is a radical concept for them. One God, one Spirit that binds us all together as one people, that's radical to them extremely radical to them. These are former pagans. They would have believed in contending with many spirits and many divine spirits of this entire pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. One must... This is Paul's instructions. You've got to get rid of all of that. That's false. That's wrong. You must renounce these other spirits. There's only one true divine spirit. You must hold and declare allegiance to the one true living God, to His Spirit, the true Spirit of life, the true spiritual power and authority in this universe and in this world. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, or let me offer this translation as well, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Christians do not have separate hopes. We don't have separate hopes. We're all called together to one hope. One hope in what? Eternal life that we will all enjoy together. One hope in eternal life. One hope to enjoy God forever in resurrection glory in his new creation which is on its way. They are also called to express that unity this side of eternity as well. As Clinton Arnold writes in his commentary, let me offer you a paraphrase that he gives. Just like you were called in one body and one spirit, so also you were called in one hope. We all have one mutual future hope. Eternal life with God and with one another in the eternal kingdom. What the Apostle John and Isaiah call this new heaven and new earth. This is our one great mutually shared hope. That's what makes us one with all of these people all over the world who do not look like us, do not act like us, do not dress like us, do not speak the same language, and do not wear the same fashions. But we are one with them. In Jesus Christ our Lord is one people, one body, one hope for the one true life to be had in the one true world that is coming with the one true God who is eternal and binds us all together. Hope. Hope. Let me pick this word apart for you because a lot of people have, they don't have a proper idea of the New Testament definition of hope. The Koine Greek word for hope that the apostles use. We often think of hope as, oh, well, I hope so and so and such and such will happen. I'm not really sure. It probably won't. I hope so. That's not the word for hope, the concept of hope that Paul uses. The word he uses is elpes. Elpes, hope, means absolute Confident expectation. Confident expectation in something that is real, that is concrete, and that is absolute. Calling again is klesios, which Paul uses repeatedly in this passage. And it's an interesting word that he uses for call. I kind of wish we would translate it differently in English. Klesios means a summons. A formal summons a formal invitation. You are being formally invited and summoned by the king of the universe. That's what Clasius' call means. Verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is only one Lord, one faith, one true spiritual reality and belief system, and one baptism which is at the heart and core of the church's unity. The truth of God, the truth about God must be at the heart of of the church's unity otherwise you do not have true unity one Lord this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself God the Son who is God who is Lord he is Lord by virtue of the fact that he is God this is a declaration of the true identity and the deity of Jesus Lord is Kyrios in the original Greek absolute sovereign Lord and master in most contexts in which it's used in the New Testament. It corresponds, it dovetails, it goes hand in glove with the ancient Hebrew word Adonai, a title given only to God Himself, meaning King of kings, Lord of lords, absolute sovereign of all. That is who Jesus is. A clear, bold proclamation Jesus is Lord curios by virtue of the fact that He is divine, God the Son, the Lord who is God. You do have the deity and the Lordship of Christ here. One faith, one faith, what does He mean by that? One faith as in the faith, the Christian faith, the biblical, theological, and doctrinal truth that all true Christians in this world must believe, obey, adhere to, and confess. As the apostolic writer Jude writes in the book of Jude, verse 4, Paul means the faith, according to Jude, the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. One faith as in one truth, one reality, one worldview, one belief system, one and one only, which is truth. One baptism. That's fairly simple or should be fairly simple. I think Paul is just simply referring to the rite or ritual, the ceremony of water baptism. The outward symbol of the inner spiritual reality. One baptism, as in all Christians, upon conversion, upon receiving the new birth, are commanded to be baptized, immersed in water to symbolize the new birth. As in this, when you are lowered into that water, it represents that you were in spiritual death that Christ has saved you from. When you are raised from that water, it symbolizes that you have been raised to spiritual life, the new birth in Christ. Also, it is to identify the believer with, obviously, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. When we are lowered down into that water, it symbolizes our solidarity with the burial and death of Christ. As He was buried, so we are buried under that water. As He was raised to life on His resurrection day, we are raised out of that water symbolizing His resurrection. And as He was raised bodily from death, so by His command and authority one day we will be raised from bodily death. We believers are commanded to do this, to be baptized. One baptism according to Paul that we all have experienced or should experienced. Believers born of God... Enter into a union with Christ by faith, which is signified, symbolized, sealed through water baptism. There's only one baptism because there's only one Lord, because there's only one faith and one God who is brought all together into one united body. Again, let me quote an ESV study Bible text note. Paul also uses the term baptism in another way. Some of you may not be aware of this or have forgotten this. He uses baptism to describe something else. He uses the term baptism to refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in uniting every individual Christian believer into the church, into the body of Christ. He uses baptism that way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So Paul's confession here in this statement of faith, or this creed, if it were a formal creed, it probably is just Indicating the rite or ceremony of baptism and all that it symbolizes. One baptism, a sign of the believer's unity with Christ and with one another. Verse 6, our closing verse for today. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul here ends this statement of faith a statement of belief, creed if you will, by a declaration of belief in the one true living God, who is the spiritual father of all of the redeemed. That's who he means. The spiritual father of all of God's redeemed people, all who have received the new birth in Christ, Christian believers. Now notice, have you noticed the Trinity here? This is a Trinitarian passage. Paul is teaching, he is implying God as a Trinity. Look closely. Verse 4, you have God the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, you have God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 6, you have God the Father. This is a Trinitarian passage, verses 4 to 6. The God who is three in personhood, but the God who is one in His nature, His essence, and His being. Now Paul describes God in another interesting way. We have to be careful with this. The God of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. By describing God this way, Paul is stressing God's sovereignty, His omnipotence, and His omnipresence in and over His creation. Some people accuse Paul of teaching something akin to pantheism here that is not in any way, shape, or form what Paul is teaching. He is not teaching pagan pantheism. That is, the entire universe and all that it contains is God. That's Eastern paganism. That's what, not what Paul is teaching. Paul is not teaching that God is the all. You find that in the Star Wars movie. Sorry, Matt. Right? The force, which is their God, and the force is made up of everybody and everything in the universe and the color. That's just Eastern pagan pantheism. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Not at all. He's teaching you the attributes of God or some of the incommunicable divine attributes of God. That's what he's teaching, simply. God is the Father. Well, first of all, let me, what is he teaching? God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence in, over, and through his creation. God is the Father of all believers in the church. He reigns over them, he works through them, and he lives his Spirit in all of them. Once again, Paul's not teaching pantheism. God is not the all. He's saying God is over all. God is present in his creation, but he's outside of his creation. Creation isn't God. God is the creator who is other than his creation and outside and above and beyond his creation. God isn't creation. He's the creator who made creation and all that it contains. Thereby he is over all. He made all. And yes, He does work in and through all He created. Remember? The divine plan. He made the universe. He rules over the universe. And He fills this universe with His presence. All right. Think of another way in which God is omnipresent. Or He is all over this world. Well, He is omnipresent because He is the infinite being. Therefore, He is everywhere. There is nowhere where He is not present. But there's another way in which he's all over this world. Paul says the Holy Spirit of the living God, who gave you, who applied the work of the Redeemer to your soul to give you the new life, the new birth, he lives in the core of your being. There are Christian believers all over the world. And he lives in them, the members of his bride, his body, and his church, all over the world. There's another way in which He is ever-present or omnipresent throughout or all over this world. With that, I give the last word of the day to theologian Clinton Arnold. and I have to, um, <laughs> I have to tell you, he has a few closing paragraphs in this particular section of his commentary, beginning chapter 4. And he does a wonderful job of reminding you of what this meant to our brothers and sisters in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And he bridges the years very, very well because this is sacred scripture. It applies to our life just as much as it did to Christian believers in the first century AD. And I went back and forth and back and forth. Do I want to read this to this folks? I don't like to give you quotes that are too awfully long, but he does say, of a few wonderful things and make makes some great points in about three paragraphs here so last night I decided go ahead (laughs) you need to read this you need to share this with these folks they will enjoy it. so I hope you will enjoy what he has to say unity begins by sharing a commitment to a common faith that's where true unity lies unity begins by sharing a commitment to the common faith as a central part of his appeal to unity, Paul makes this places this confession of faith here. These creedal statements are some of the core truths upon which all of these believers must agree. They were truths about God that informed how they worshipped them, how they taught new believers, and what they were to celebrate when they came together to meet and to worship. The reality is that the non-Christian community in Ephesus at the time this letter was written would have viewed these statements as myopic, intolerant, and even scandalous. For a group of people to abandon the worship of all of the old traditional gods and goddesses, and now proclaim that the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, was the one and only true God, they would have considered that outright defamatory. The hard truth is that Paul's intent for these Ephesian believers is that there would be no one in the congregation of believers in this city, in this area, who still worshiped Artemis or Diana or any of the others for spiritual help and insight. The confession of one God, one Lord, one Holy Spirit of God implies the renunciation of all other gods and spirits who once held the allegiance and attention of these Ephesian believers. This kind of unity Paul envisions for the new humanity, it far transcends any other kind of unity that could be achieved in any other human network, united around any other common cause. People living in Ephesus, for instance, well certainly they experience a certain level of unity in their relationships or friendships with other members of their trade guilds or civic pride or participation with Fellow retired soldiers from the Roman military, but Paul is here casting a vision for something far deeper that comes from the one true God and is created by his spirit. People in the modern church today run the risk of diluting this vision for the church when they diminish the importance of the one and only common faith as the foundation for unity. There can be a temptation to overlook essential differences in the core elements of the faith in a quest for simply just getting along with one another this leaves only a veneer of unity not the true unity in the way that the Lord has intended it the unity of believers stems from a common calling by God unity is based on a relationship with the one true God who has called us into a bond with himself four different times in this passage Paul uses the word call summon Invited, as part of the basis of His appeal. This calling or summons is God's invitation to each of us to respond in faith to His offer of salvation and to become a part of the new humanity that He is gathering to be His very own, based upon His choosing us first. This calling is our opportunity to experience God's grace, mercy, and love because He redeemed us, because He has forgiven our sin, and He has united it with His Son in resurrection and exaltation. It is our privilege to experience peace with God because of all of this. A closeness and intimacy with Him by virtue of our identification with Christ. This calling is your new identity. Understand it. Live it. Because we share this profound experience of redemption, salvation, in union with the Lord, and a common glorious future with His people, this is the powerful bond of unity. It leads us to worship the glory of our great God and Savior. Recognition of our calling by God. He chose us first. Our salvation is all the work of God. This should go a long way in diminishing our sense of self-importance. And this should enable us to cultivate the humility that Paul speaks of here, which is so foundational to unity. God did not choose us and call us because we were so wonderful. Our calling represents God's initiative and His unmerited grace upon us. As theologian Peter O'Brien notes, we are a society of pardoned rebels upon whom the King of the universe has showered His favor. Sovereign or God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the magnificent truth that Brother Paul teaches us this day. And thank You for His instructions in how we are to apply this truth to our life. To translate these words, these truth concepts and realities to our life in everyday life on a daily basis to work our way through our pilgrimage on our way to our eternal home. Help us by the power of your Spirit to have the courage and the ability and the faithfulness to obey these words and live them out in everyday life. For one another, and first and foremost for you, our one and only Lord, our one and only God, our one and only truth, our one and only hope, our one and only Redeemer, and in the end, our one and only true reality. In Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.